<clears throat> this evening we're going to touch on theology, but one thing I think is important is that we know how to defend uh, the scriptures. Now, the scriptures really need no defense, but there are people who will come up and they will let you know that the Bible is filled with contradictions. This is a handout that I got from a guy who said the Bible is not God's word. And he lists, I don't know, probably 30 or 40 contradictions. So I'm going to want you guys to solve some of these. All right. How about this side turn to Matthew 8:28 and this side turn to Mark chapter 5 verse 2. Matthew 8:28 Someone want to read that on that side? That side. Nice and loud. Gergesenes or Gadarenes. Okay, that's good. This side, Mark 5 2. Anyone? Okay. How many demon possessed men on this side? There's two. How many on this side? It's a, it's the same event. Is this a contradiction? Okay, so defend yourself, you Bible-believing Christian. How do you reconcile on this side that there's two demons or demon-possessed men? On this side, there's only one. Do what? So this guy would say that there were not two. Mark 5-2. Okay, I would say it's taken from the perspective of two different people. Who wrote about it in Matthew? Yes, Peter would have been the witness in Mark because Mark was like Peter's secretary and he wrote that down. <clears throat> and in the other one, it would have been Matthew. So you have two different perspectives, right? On two different perspectives, if it was Peter, he may have just been focusing on the one individual. It doesn't mean he wasn't there. It simply means Peter only recognized one one that was maybe doing the main speaking. So this is not a contradiction. This is simply just two different perspectives. Okay, let's try another one. Um, let's see which one I want to give you. Oh, here's one. 
on this side, John chapter 19, verse 14. And on this side, Mark chapter 15, verse 25. Okay, John chapter 19, verse 14. Okay, what hour was it? Okay, on this side, you guys read. The third hour. Okay, so Jesus was crucified on the third hour, but on this one, he was before Pilate at the sixth hour. Now, do you guys know how they reconcile time? The uh, zero hour is at uh, dawn. That's the way it is, third watch of the... Let's see, uh, six hour would have been 12 o'clock, okay? Third hour would have been nine o'clock. So at nine o'clock, he was crucified, but the other one says the sixth hour. You guys know how to reconcile that? Nope. Yes. There, have you heard this one before? There is. There's the Jewish way of reckoning time, which starts at 6 a.m. Then there's a Roman way of reckoning time, which starts at 12. And so if it started at 12 and he was before Pilate at the 6th hour, and then he was crucified at what time? Yeah, so he was before uh, Pilate at 6 a.m. and was crucified at 9 so it's the reconciling of the two types of time um, recognition, one of the Romans and one of the Jews. Is that a contradiction? So far, what, what do you think about this guy's scholarship? It's terrible. He starts with what is known as a, well, he's eisegeting the scripture. He has a particular view and he's trying to make it work to come up with these contradictions. Let's see. Um, you would get that one too easy. Let's see. Um, okay, here's one. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 on this side. And James chapter 2, verse 17 on this side. James chapter 2, verse 17. Okay, anyone on this side? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Okay, James chapter 2, verse 17. Or works, if it is not accompanied by works, it is dead. So Nate said, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of works. But on this side, James says, faith without works is dead. 
I couldn't have said it better. Do you guys understand that? One is actual coming to faith, and the other one, it's an outworking of the faith that you already have. If you're not outworking what you already believe, then the faith is not genuine, right? Well, that's a work, yeah. You're expressing your faith by following um, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. You want to look that one up? Hebrews ten twenty five, And I want you to tell me if that is a command or a suggestion. And read it nice and loud. Hebrews ten twenty five. Okay, first, what does it mean? That's right. <clears throat> so is it a command or a suggestion? It is a command. That's right. And so that would be a work of faith as well. When God says you should meet together, then you meet together. Now, not everybody can meet together. I get that. You know, sometimes there's obligations that take precedent. But for the most part, people are going to say, okay, we're going to get together because Christ said, or through Paul, said, let's get together. Okay, one final one. On this side, John chapter 18, verse 31. And on this side, John chapter 19, verse 7. John 18, verse 31. Who wants to read that? Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Okay. John 19, 7. Okay, so on one hand, the Jews say it's not lawful to put a man to death. On the other hand, the Jews say there's a law and he needs to die. Is that a contradiction? How do you reconcile the two if it is? Now, this is what this guy wrote as contradictions in the Bible, and he has a slew of them on here. Well, not because of the holiday. Yes, they would have broke the Roman law. The Romans took away the right of capital punishment from the Jews. And so that's the explanation here. They have a law that says he must die, but they had to go to the Romans in order to get him crucified. 
is what had to happen. This guy is saying that on one hand, you know, we can't kill him. On the other hand, we have a law that says he has to die. It's not a contradiction. Now, these were some of the easiest ones on here, but all of them have an explanation. And so when somebody says the Bible is filled with contradictions, your response should always be, show me one. And when they get to one, if they have one in mind, then you could take the time. Maybe you can answer it right there. If you can't answer it right there, there's going to be a reasonable explanation. Get the person's number and uh, call them back up and say, okay, I got your answer. You know, people say that all the time to discount what the Bible has to say. All right, let's go on to theology. Before we do, do you guys have any questions? No questions. We're all good. Yes? How do you know when it's a suggestion versus a command? In the English, we would have an exclamation point. Uh, That would be a command. Also, you want to look up the tense of the verb that is there. Uh, Or if there is a descriptive word, um, something in the language that would suggest that it is a suggestion, like you might do this, where he just flat out says, do not give up meeting together as is the habit of some. Just the phraseology, even in English, is a command. Do not. It's in the imperative mood is what it's called. And so that's how it's been translated to us, and that's what the verb in the Greek actually says. So uh, if you look up any type of uh, English, if you diagram a sentence and you have to get the mood as well, you can find that out easily um, by the context that is given. But in the Greek, it's even easier than that. You go directly to some books, and they will show you which mood the verb has been conjugated in to let you know. So, all right. Theology. What is theology? The word theology, the definition, is theo and ology. Theo is of or relating to God. Ology is a study of. So it's a study of God or a study of those things relating to God. Now, with theology, theology has a uh, connection or sometimes a contrast between science and theology, or there's a melding together as well. Why theology? Why did I pick that topic to talk about theology and not something else? Well, we all have a need to know. We want to know what the truth is. Uh, And with that truth, we always have the desire to know why. We like to know Where did I come from? Did you ask your parents that when you were young? Where did I come from? No. Or I remember at age 12 asking the question and being very upset about it because my grandmother died. If we live and then we die, what's the point? There is no point. And I got really troubled by that. And uh, God actually answered the question for me. I never went to my parents and asked them. But I was uh, really disturbed. So where did we come from? Uh, What happens when I die? And also, we always want to know right from wrong. Uh, Is this okay? Can I do this? Do the children look to their parents as if to ask a question, but they're doing it non-verbally, like, can I? You know, if somebody says, well, why don't you go do this? The child looks to the parent and goes, 
like this. And the parent goes, well, go ahead. The parent gives the approval, right? So we, even from an early age, we want to know what right and wrong is. Those people who don't endeavor to find out right and wrong, what happens to them? They get killed or they get thrown in prison, right? Because they have no moral background, no moral fiber that they have cultivated or woven into their life. Now, these things, these questions that I've just brought up, and the answers deal with origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Those are the four questions that we all have that come up from time to time. <clears throat> these things are answered in Scripture. And if we know the truth, our questions will be satisfied. But most people are not satisfied with the answers that the Scripture says. And so then they go off in their own direction. Now, what is the consequence of not knowing ultimate truth? The, what is the end result? The very end if you don't know or accept ultimate truth. That's it. Hell is the payment for not accepting ultimate truth. And so how important is theology, knowing, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny? If you get it wrong, have you made an error and miss the ultimate goal? You do. For instance, and I'll go over it just a little bit. If you have a misunderstanding of who God is, do you miss the mark and miss heaven? If somebody comes to you and says, Jesus is not God, he's Michael the archangel. Are they going to heaven if they believe that? Some people say, what do you mean? If they're just Michael, Jesus is just Michael, and they're not, you know, that's the Jehovah Witness doctrine, that he was a spirit being. They believe in a different God. Uh, they believe in somebody else that is not able to save them. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. So it's imperative, it is necessary, it is of the utmost importance that we find out who God is. And so there is the theology of God. And we have to determine, do we understand who God is as revealed in the Bible? And there's people that look at the Bible differently and they would come up with different answers. And so this is, again, critical that we have this down. The consequence of not knowing the truth from the Christian perspective is hell, lack of reward, and also the loss of others. If people come to us and they want to know about God and we give them a false statement or false information, we actually lead them astray. And so we want to make sure we're giving them proper information. So how do you do theology? What, it, what does it require? Now, as I sat down, I had a whole different text on theology. And I realized I'm going to get the gloss over on the eyes. And unless you're into that kind of thing, it's not going to benefit you at all. So I'm going to give you a truncated version of what's here, and we're going to go through some theological terms to just give you an idea. Now, what we believe determines how we act, right? For instance, did you hear the news today that a woman, uh, I think she looked at her 
um, phone. Maybe she had a camera that was set up in the house, but she got an alert that somebody was breaking into her house. She drove to the house. She saw a young man trying to leave the house. And after somewhat of an altercation, she shot him and he died. And that was in the news today. The sister came out and said, well, how else is he supposed to make money growing up in the hood? He just can't do it. Now, what's wrong with that statement? What he believes determines how he acts. What she believed determined what was right and wrong. Somehow she thought it was okay and she said, the woman should have just let him go, run away. And she didn't. She protected her property and she shot him and he died when he got to the hospital. So you see what you determine or what you believe determines how you act. If you think it's okay, if you think it's acceptable and there will be no consequences to your actions, then you follow through with it. If you don't believe that God is going to come and judge the living and the dead, there are going to be consequences to pay for that. It doesn't change the truth just because you choose not to believe it. Truth is objective. Truth is transcendent. Transcendent means the truth didn't originate with us. The truth originated with God, and he let us know what that truth is. So it's vitally important that we understand what is theology, why we study theology, how do we do theology. It is assumed, like I said, that our view of Scripture will influence our behavior. And then you look at the Bible. Um, there is the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, and you can look it up online, but it deals with the Scripture saying it's the authoritative Word of God. It is inspired, and men wrote it down as they were inspired, and it is without error in its intent and also not in its translation, but as it was delivered to us. Um, it, I think the word is plenary. Uh, in every thought that is meant to be communicated, it is without error. Now, we have errors in our translations because we don't have the original autographs, the original documents that it was written on, but we have thousands of copies of those originals. So with that, we have to come to a conclusion, each one of us personally, like this guy did not that had these contradictions. He actually says in this document that the Bible is not the Word of God. If you don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, you're not going to believe what's in it, and therefore you're going to miss getting saved. What you believe determines how you act, and how you act is going to determine where you're going to end up. There's actually a statement written by Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Now this guy, I don't know if he's a Christian, but this is what he wrote. So a thought, reap an action. So an action, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. And so if you think that God isn't going to do what he said he is going to do, you're going to reap a destiny, which is eternal separation from God. And just the opposite, if you saw a thought that God's word is true and what he said is going to come true, you're going to reap a destiny, which is eternal life and eternal bliss. And so we have to come to the conclusion, each one of us, is the Bible the inspired word of God without error or is it not? If you choose to believe it is not, then anything is open. You can make any doctrine you want to at all. Remember a few weeks ago, I told I think on Sunday morning, I told you guys about uh, this one individual who was in the church, according to uh, John, I think it's chapter 11, if you believe in me, you will never die. And he thought if he just had enough faith, he wouldn't die physically, which 
he was an error. And if he told other people that, uh, they would end up falling into error. And error begets error. And so the more error you fall into, the more you will fall for. Uh, and you want to make sure you're getting it right. Now, there's <clears throat> two types of theology, the way that we can look at it. There is a theology from above, and there's a theology from below. Now, I may give you some names here. I don't expect you to remember the names, but you can be familiar with them. One is Charles Hodge, and he is the father, I would say, of um, modern theology. And he almost wrote the treatise on theology. And then there's this other guy named um, Stanley, what's his last name? Stanley Grenz, G-R-E-N-Z. And that's the name of the document that was written about him, at least one of the documents about the two of them. How you have this theology from above and you have this theology from below. The theology from above states that God's word is inspired, it's without error, uh, it's perfect when he delivered it to us. The different translations we have, there's going to be some minor errors in there, but none of the doctrines are going to be changed. Everything that it is intended to do, it will accomplish. The theology... Yes, you have a question? Oh, how about that? Huh? Even a Mormon got some truth in there. <laughs> well, he got that right. And by the way, most of their Bible, they, uh, are, they have a quad, but they do carry the King James Bible. So they can get some truth in there, and that's definitely truth. If you sow a thought, you're going to reap a destiny. That's the way it goes. <clears throat> now, going on with these two individuals, the theology from above starts with the fact that the Bible is inspired and it's inerrant and it's truthful. Theology from below does not agree with that. It simply states that truth is truth as the community comes together, and the community being all Christians, as we come together and discover the truth of God. And God can reveal it to us in many different ways. He doesn't have exclusively his Bible as the inerrant word of God. Now, there are lots of people, and a guy that wrote this claimed to be a Christian, but there are lots of people, lots of religions that will hold to this. Uh, if you really want to get into it, and I'll give you this as a side note, if you read Karl Barth, B-A-R-T-H, the H is silent because he is German, Emil Brunner, um, uh, who else uh, is out there? I'll think of the other names in a minute. But these guys, oh, Immanuel Kant, uh, he's another one, a Christian philosopher. They all held to this idea that the Bible is not the inspired word of God. And it gave rise to a movement known as neo-Orthodox theology, that God can speak through the wind, that God can speak through a community of people, that God can speak through uh, a hailstorm, you know, all these different things that God can speak through. And as God reveals it to you, it becomes scripture then, which leads to all kinds of error. Now, a few things in here. Hodge would go on to say, and this is the theology from above, the words of Scripture are to be taken in their plain historical sense, which means if it's written in a narrative like a letter, you understand it like it's a letter. Secondly, if the Scriptures be what they claim to be, Scripture must explain Scripture. Now, there are some things you can go to outside the Bible 
and you can help that give you understanding of what the Bible says, but it will always agree with the Bible. Therefore, the onus of truth is not on the thing outside the Bible. The onus of truth is still on the Bible. So your experience can line up with the Bible, and then you can say, well, that's just what God said would happen, so it is truth. If your experience does not line up with the Bible, then it is not truth. Uh, to give an example of that, uh, remember I talked to you guys about being slain in the Spirit? You remember what that is? It's being over to quote. Now, th- I don't believe this. But they say, and these are charismatic brethren, we are charismatic too, but we're not into charismania. It's where you give yourself to the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God completely takes you over and you lose control. That violates Scripture because in 1 Corinthians it says the Spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. God will never invade and take advantage of you in that way. As you are yielded to God... He may say, okay, I'm going to use you. Maybe you'll prophesy, have a word of knowledge, something like that. But he is not going to take you over and make you do crazy things as some of the uh, evangelical charismatic movement types have done. And so scripture will be the final arbiter of truth. Uh, For instance, one of these things in the Toronto Blessing was a woman walked on all fours on stage and started roaring like a lion, like she was in a uh, trance. And she said, this is the spirit of the Lion of Judah. And she was acting like a regular lion. And she was growling and roaring on the stage, going back and forth. And that is more occult. And so if you see something like that, you're to judge it by Scripture, saying this is in proper doctrine. This is not in keeping with sound doctrine, and we're supposed to reject it. And so when it comes to the practices inside the church, if our theology is right... Everything will go better for us as far as the workings of the church and not running into issues. Uh, If you remember um, the Rock Church, they were getting into a little bit of that for a while. And the powers that be, uh, theologically speaking, came down and there was a lot of turmoil. And it was dropped like a hot potato. And because it was dropped, things smoothed out and they just are continuing now. So if somebody is going to be in error, it's the job of the body of Christ to examine the scriptures daily to see if what is taking place is true. And that's Acts chapter seventeen eleven, talking about the uh, Thessalonians because they were more noble than the Bereans because they examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. Also, the scriptures are to be interpreted under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which guidance is to be humbly and earnestly sought. The unrenewed mind is naturally blind to spiritual truth. What that means in short is if you don't have the Spirit of God, you will not be able to come to a conclusion, at least a proper conclusion, on what proper theology is. Your doctrine will err because there is the life of the Spirit and the life of the flesh. And if there is no life of the Spirit, if you do not have the Spirit dwelling in you, you cannot interpret, you cannot understand fully what God has in store as far as his doctrine is concerned. Now, so proper theology begins with a proper view of the Bible. So to summarize this, theology is the study of God. The goal is to know and understand him and his plan properly. Consequences to a missed mark is you will not attain salvation. You might lead others astray, uh, even suffering a loss of reward. 
Uh, Proper theology begins with the Word of God as revealed to us. Improper theology begins in our experiences with God and not the Word. And it's a theology from above versus a theology from below. So we don't impose our own meaning into the text. Now, I'm going to give you just a couple of subsets of theology. First, there is the word theology, which is the study of God or study of the things of God. But inside of that, there's biblical, historical, ancient, medieval theology, modern theology, dogmatic theology, Calvinistic theology, Arminian theology, covenant theology, dispensational theology, Catholic theology, contemporary theology, liberal theology, neo-Orthodox theology, and conservative theology. How much time do you think you can spend in theology? Forever. I mean, you can stay there forever, but that's God's word. If you keep on digging into it, you will keep on discovering new things. It never ends. You can just keep on going. Now, with those types of theologies, there is also biblical theology. It's a branch of theology, and it sets forth a knowledge of God and his divine uh, plan for life by means of the Bible as a whole. In other words, you take the whole Bible and not just passage. You take the whole Bible and you find out what God's intent is in the theme of the whole Bible. You don't just take out a little bit. To give you an example of this, what was, according to Jesus' own words, his gospel? What did he say? This is the good news. You guys know? He said, the kingdom of God is what? He said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is in you. He called that the gospel. What did Paul call the gospel? You have to, yeah, Jesus Christ and him crucified and buried and rose again from the dead for your salvation. Are those two Gospels different? Well, they are different. And the reason is, did Jesus say, repent? Now, he did, but when it came to the Gospel, the good news was the kingdom of God is here with you now, which meant God is here with you now. It is Emmanuel. It is Christ with us, right? But when it got to Paul, had he been crucified yet when he was given the Gospel of the kingdom? He hadn't been yet. And so the gospel changed from this covenant, this mosaic covenant, it changed to this covenant of blood. There was a change. And so the gospel is understood differently coming off the lips of Jesus than it is coming off the lips of Paul. And so these two theologies, one is a biblical theology, in the whole theme of the scripture, it makes sense. But if you took just Matthew... And when Jesus starts saying, the kingdom of God is within you. If that's all you had, and you did not have Romans, and you did not have Corinthians, if you did not have the letters of Paul, you would not have the gospel like Paul gave it. Yeah, because Jesus Christ, you know, he had been crucified, he rose from the dead, but when does Jesus come and present the gospel just like Paul did? It didn't happen, right? Whereas uh, 
Where is it spelled out how to get saved? Romans, right, the, the entire book of Romans. Who wrote Romans? Paul did. Jesus didn't dictate Romans. Also in the book of Acts, it says in chapter 16, verse 30, and he says, this is how you get saved. This is it. Jesus, you know, said you have to have faith, you know, and, and you kind of understood, well, you have to have faith. The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is among you. And if you believe in me, you'll never die. Okay, I, I get all that. But then Paul gave it its own parameters. And so, by the way, when you go to seminary, they will spend weeks on this stuff. And you have to read books about it, how the gospel of Jesus is different from the gospel of Paul. But in the concept of the entire Bible, it's all the same. So when you said, well, yeah, it's all the same. Well, it is in the context of the whole Bible when you understand the whole Bible. But if you just took out a portion, one book, and you tried to make your theology from one book, you're going to make an error. And so you have to have the theme of the whole Bible, okay? That's just one example. Uh, historical theology. <clears throat> you have to study theology over the course of time. Do you guys know what century the doctrine of being saved by grace alone through faith alone was enacted? What century was the doctrine of being saved by faith alone through grace alone enacted by the Christian church. The 16th century. It wasn't until Martin Luther came along in the 16th century, it was sola fide, sola gratis. Um, It's only the word of God. And he made several declarative statements like that. And then the church adopted it and said, wow, this this is what Scripture actually says. So when we preach today, any one of us, or we teach it, we're being saved by grace alone through faith alone. That's a result of Martin Luther 16 centuries later. That was not taught for 15 centuries. It was more this works thing. And they developed, the Catholic Church was a universal church at the time. They developed these indulgences. If you just gave enough money, then you could make it to heaven and get some time out of purgatory. And we had corrupted the scriptures at that time. What about the eschatology of being um, uh, raptured by the church? When did that come in? Nineteenth century. That's when it came in with the Niagara Falls conferences. But it was taught in the first century. If you go back to one book called, um, oh, what's the name? Um, (laughs) It just slipped out of my mind. There is this book, something the apostles. But in it, it was written in the first century, right, right after the first century, second century. It says the church will not go through the rapture. And there are several other documents that have been written Um, I don't know if it was Clement or a few of the others, but there's quotes in there where it says all the way up to the third century that the church is not going to go through the rapture. But then Augustine came into power, um, quote-unquote, inside the Catholic church, and he didn't believe that. He was an amillennialist, that Jesus would not come back and rule and reign for a thousand years, neither was there a little rapture. And so from the third century all the way up until the 19th century, if you taught 
that there was a rapture and Jesus would rule and reign, you could be killed for a thousand years. They would actually kill you and say you were a heretic and that you had to be dealt with most severely. And so that's why you have to look at, you have to develop a theology over time. It isn't something, the theology was not set in the first century. It wasn't set in the second century. And even today, when I said there's a view of theology from above and a view of theology down below, they are still trying to modify the theology of the church. And there have been attempts every single century to do that. Like, for instance, uh, the theology of um, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. I've talked to you about this. Maybe you'll remember it. Modalism. You guys know what modalism is? This came out in the first century. It's where God is not three in one. God is one and he appears as three different people or three different manifestations of the one God. And that is incorrect. If you hear somebody use the manifestations, that's the one, oneness Pentecostals, as we talked about when it came to the cults. If you believe that, you are still lost in your sins. You believe in a different Jesus. Did you talk to that guy, Nate, about that? He went the next day and he talked to somebody who was a oneness Pentecostal and he said that exact same thing. He he was a modalist. He believed that, well, when the father wanted to show up as the father, he did, but then he changed and he showed up as Jesus. And then when he didn't want to do that, he showed up as the spirit. And that's not correct. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's a bad theology. That theology died out. It was declared to be a heresy, but it resurrected. Do you know when it resurrected? It resurrected with the Jehovah Witnesses. So, you know, they they were modalists. Now, it it may be modified a little bit today, but it showed back up again. And and these things raise their heads. And when they do, you have to be able to recognize it because if people buy into that, they're believing in a different Jesus, a different God, and they're still lost in their sins. That's why theology is so important. Okay, so you got historical, and then there's the systematic theology. So you got... Regular theology with all of those subsets. You have biblical theology, historical theology, and systematic theology. The systematic theology is when you take all of these other theologies, then you have to apply it. You have to say, okay, so what am I going to do if all of these things are true and it's a theology from above, not a theology from below? How am I going to act? How am I going to work this out? For instance, we read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. The theology of that passage is, go to church, go to Bible study. If you want to change that, you are in error. But with a systematic theology, if you follow the word of God, which is inerrant, you say, okay, this is one of the things I'm going to do. What's another thing you're going to do? You're going to take communion, right? You're going to receive the blood of Christ and the bread that represents his body, the blood being represented by the the juice that you drink, the fruit of the vine. You're going to do that because he says, as often as you do it, this is what you're going to do. You're also going to get baptized as a disciple because he says, get baptized. This is one of the things you do. Also, you're going to express your faith to others. You're not going to hide it. He who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father which is in heaven. So you're working out a system of your theology as you properly understand it and you check yourself all the time. You ask the Lord to teach you by his Holy Spirit. You go to pastors and teachers and evangelists. You ask them and prophets and pastors. Anyone who is like that in a position of authority, elders and deacons, you ask them. You say, is this correct? And you hone your theology. If you're doing something that is incorrect, you change it to bring in line with the proper, solid 
doctrine of the word. The theology that is right, that is correct. There's a thing that is called orthodox theology that is simply theology that is right. It is right theology. Unorthodox theology is theology that is wrong. Okay? Um, two other things before we get into the list. Now this is uh, a double take of what I said before. There is liberal biblical theology and there is traditional biblical theology. The liberal biblical theology is really antagonistic to the um, evangelical faith. They will do the things like Mr. Grenz was talking about. Um, They will teach evolution as a theory of origins. There are Christians who believe in evolution. Scripture does not teach that. They will emphasize the human aspect of the Bible rather than the divine. There is, um, what, what is the name of it? There is this one group of individuals who hold to the fact that Isaiah had four different authors, that Moses couldn't have possibly wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that miracles do not happen. And this, uh, I believe, was first published back in the, it's either 1925 or in the 50s. And it's a documentary hypothesis. You can look it up. And the people that do the theological programs on television, like the Discovery Channel, they hold to the documentary hypothesis because they come up with every single explanation that they can to get rid of the miracles. Have you ever seen the parting of the Red Sea on the Discovery Channel and the Exodus? They say, the wind blew and blew away the water. And that's how it happened. And fire rained down from heaven. Well, uh, fire and brimstone. Well, obviously, there must have been some volcanic activity in the area. And this is how it happened. There's a reasonable explanation for that. So whenever you watch these documentaries, some of them are good. But very few of them are good. They always mix up the theology with their low theology, the theology from human beings up. And this is the proper explanation, not this explanation that is coming from here. It is a documentary documentary hypothesis that is correct. And there are no miracles that take place. But God says there are miracles that take place. And so you want to hold to that. Now, just because you don't see something happen like it says in the Bible doesn't mean that the theology isn't true. Your experience doesn't determine truth. And people use their experience all the time. Um, then there's the traditional biblical theology. It pays attention to the important historical circumstances, understands that God revealed himself little by little, portion by portion. It draws from the Bible text almost exclusively. It is exegetical in nature, which means it takes the literal, grammatical, historical methodology to determine what is correct in other words you you look at the actual text you look at the words you parse the words you see what what does god mean in these words we don't do that normally when we read a letter and if it's in the narrative very little of that is necessary but if you really want to get to some deeper meaning sometimes that's where you have to go and so some of these doctrines that are affected by this like the doctrine of god if you wanted to just get into the doctrine of god the theology surrounding that you could look at, and this is not exhaustive, the providence of God, the fatherhood of God, the grace of God, the kingship of God, the judgment of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God, the power of God, the trinity of God. That's just the doctrine of God. And I just gave you a few. 
What about the doctrine of Christ? There's the virgin birth, the humanity, the sinlessness, the deity, the atoning work, the resurrection. And it talks about nothing about the Old Testament line of Judah, the Rose of Sharon, all of those things. And there's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Do you guys know the name of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Do you know it? Come on, you know it. Yes, it's pneumatology. So take out this. Now, I have just given you enough to last you for years if you wanted to get into it, right? And there's so much more. I mean, volumes and volumes and this whole room could not contain all the books that have been written about different aspects of theology. Can't happen. But in order for you, if you want to find something, I wanted to give you this list. This list will cover just about anything you need, uh, not exhaustively, because there are subsets of some of these things, but it will give you just about everything you need if you want to dive into theology. Okay, so you're going to write down what these actually are. Now, um, Dustin, everyone that you know, I want you to tell everybody. Wait, wait, wait. Let people write it down. Give them time. It, by the way, when it says ology, it's understood it's the study of. So you can just name what they are, okay? A high theology? You know, I don't think that there's really anything as high theology. There's highfalutin words. And, you know, when you... I just read a, um, a paper on theology. And the words that were... It took me back to my seminary days. And if you start reading about induction... And you start... Uh, what was some of the other words that they used in there? Um, anyhow, the words, they were million-dollar words. And an average person, if they haven't been trained in it, would have to have the dictionary, as I did when I first took that stuff. I had to have the dictionary right next to me in order to look up the words that they were referring to in the paper. And because of that, I came to the realization, the only people that read these papers are the people that are either in the ivory towers that they talk back and forth to each other or it's somebody who's going to a seminary or Bible college and they're being exposed to it. The average person will never be exposed to, you know, redaction and veracity. Those are always used uh, in these theological papers. And it, it just ad infinitum. They have their own vocabulary that they um, talk with. So high theology, no, there's just highfalutin ivory tower Christians that write out this stuff. Okay, go ahead. Soteriology, salvation by faith. 
Okay, in the Christian anthropology, if you got a more technical definition, it would be the study of humans in light of the Bible is what that is. Because anthropology is the study of humans in light of science. But Christian anthropology is the study of humans in light of the Bible. So uh, you would look at the sinful nature and the fallen na- or the fallen nature as opposed to an unfallen nature and, and that type of thing. So go ahead. Study of interpretation. Preaching. Study of preaching. By the way, the word omni, or the prefix there, omni, it is not in the scripture. We develop words that will encompass what the scripture teaches. And that's what theology does. It gives a name to what we understand. So if you, if you want to know about the spirit of God, you go to pneumatology. Now, pneuma is Greek for wind. Is what that means. So it's study of the wind or study of the spirit is the way it works. And so we give them these human words, these concepts, so we can narrow it down and better understand it. Go ahead. It's good enough. The hypostatic union. Okay, the hypostatic union is taking the human nature of Jesus Christ and bringing it together with the divine nature. And when you bring them together, they don't mix. They are distinct. That's the hypostatic union. They are distinct but they are both in Christ. So that's, you start getting into that. It's also called the um, theanthropic principle. That's what it's called. Okay, go ahead. Fully God, fully human. Neither one is diminished. Neither one is mixed or combined. putting a square peg in a round hole. I believe this, and I'm going to find a scripture that teaches it. Right? (laughs) Yeah.
Well, it's, it's kind of like that. The ontological argument is, and I'll, I'll give you an example to help explain it. <clears throat> Obviously, when the church is here, everyone's here, there is somebody who is the smartest in here. I doubt if it's me, so you don't have to go down that road. But there's somebody in here who is the smartest. If, if you took all the churches that exist throughout the world, there's going to be someone at one particular moment that is going to be the smartest and most powerful in all the churches. If you took the world at any one time, there is someone who may occupy that spot only for a second or two who is going to be the smartest and the strongest out of everybody in the world. Is it conceivable that outside of this world there is someone who is smarter and more powerful than all of us? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, even if you didn't believe in God, you could say, well, yeah, that's possible. If you talk to somebody who believed in aliens, you would say, well, yeah, that's possible, right? And so because you can conceive of something greater than yourself then it must exist because we already know it's truth that there is already, there's somebody who's greater than me. There's somebody who's greater than you. We just haven't found them yet. And so if you just draw it to its logical conclusion, in all the universe, there's going to be one person or something that is going to be more powerful, smarter than anyone else that exists. And when you get to that peak, that's the ontological argument for the existence of God. You can actually arrive at it just by thinking at it. And this is, again, not in the Bible. This is a philosophical argument. Go ahead. Next. Oh, yeah. It's like inductive. Okay. You, you get everything and you bring it together and then you draw a conclusion where I said Jesus is you have one thing and you try to find everything you can that matches up with your one thing your thesis it's just the opposite Right. For instance, um, I think I've mentioned this before. What is the formula for an isosceles triangle to find the area or the, uh, the circumference? I forget which one it is. I have to think of the formula. If you want to find the hypotenuse, right? You guys know it on a right triangle? You guys know the formula for that? A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Did we make that up or did we discover it? If we discover it, who made it up? So the law was already in existence. If you go to physics, force equals mass time acceleration. That's how we went to the moon, right? Force equals mass times acceleration. You know how to launch a rocket. Or for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so we have formulas for that, right? Force equals mass times acceleration. If you hit something in space and it just continues, there's going to be a formula for that. 
Did we make it up or did we discover it? We discovered it. E equals MC squared. Did we make it up or did we discover it? We discovered it. Einstein discovered it. And so these laws govern the universe. Astrophysics, they work out the math to figure out how these planets are working. And when the math is all coming together and it works in the math, well, they just discovered the laws that already exist. And so there is intelligence in the universe, and we're discovering it all the time. That's the teleological argument for the existence of God. How big does the intelligence have to be that put that into motion? Omniscient, right? Okay, go ahead. What's the next one? Yeah, it's called... It's, yes, it's the first cause principle. Everything has a cause. Well, what if somebody says, well, it began with the Big Bang. Well, who put the stuff there for the Big Bang? Well, it just was. Really? Okay. Everything has a cause. What caused it to blow up? Well, it just did. No, it, it doesn't just did, right? right? And there can't be nothing because nothing can't say to itself, I want to become something. I mean, if you can't imagine a box that is just empty on the inside and all of a sudden that nothingness that's on the inside, I'm th thinking of a child's movie now, The NeverEnding Story, but if there's a nothingness inside that box, that nothingness cannot say to itself, I want to become something. So if something exists now, something had to exist forever. There can't be a time where something didn't exist. That's a cosmological argument, so... Okay, next. Declared right. Yeah, declared right. It, the word that is used in the King James is ransom. That Christ paid the ransom for our debt. In other words, we were held in bondage to sin but Christ paid the price. He became our propitiation, propitiation for our sins. He satisfied the price that was required. That's propitiation. What's that? Question? No? Yeah. Next? Yes. 
That's because they contain the same stories. And just so that you know, if you go to seminary, they're going to tell you this, but nobody else knows about it because they made it up. Uh, They take the three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, and they say they all took from one document because they're all so similar. And so they... They each shared that document, and that document that they each wrote their Gospels from is called Q. That's what it's called. It's called Q. Do they have any evidence of Q? No. Have they found any writings about Q? No. The Christians in the ivory towers, the high theology guys, they have made this up. And they said they all went to this one document to write out Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is different. So go ahead. Well, he yeah, he's everywhere. Yeah. Okay, now that's just a smattering of the things that you guys could look up if you wanted to, and you can search forever uh, to find new insights when it comes to theology. The last thing I want to leave you guys with, did you guys grab the spiritual gifts test? Yes. Has everybody taken it? Anybody? Who's taken it? You, you. Okay, you don't have to take it again if you don't want to. It's just to figure out what your gift is. Now, to help you with this, when you ask the question, or when it asks you the question, like question number one, what is question number one? Okay, then turn over to the last page. And does it have a box there for question one? And what does the key say? Zero to four? Okay, if you have a, the question was, do you have a strong desire to help out in the church? Is that it? Enjoy working behind the scenes, taking care of little details. Okay, if you did not like that at all, you put zero. If you really love that, that's what excites you, you put four. Now, it's more helpful on this test if you think you would like it more than like it less, put a three. Or maybe a four. The greater distinction when you add it all up at the end. And by the way, when you're done going across, like you have question, has it go down or it goes across? Okay, so when it goes down, you're going to put the proper number uh, on your desire, zero to four, in those boxes. And then you will add up the total as it goes across the page to your right. And the maximum you can get on any question is 16. If you've never taken a gifts test, this is, I think this is the one where um, it's what you would like to do. If you take this test and somebody is there who knows you and knows how you have worked inside the church, then ask them the questions or you take the test and 
first you think or you say what you like or what you believe and then let them comment to you. You might say, I don't like that very much. Somebody could turn to you and say, are you kidding me? You like take extra time to do this particular thing. That is completely you. There's a couple questions in there about tongues. If you've never spoken in tongues or had the desire to do so, you're going to have a big fat zero on there. Okay? If you speak in tongues and you speak in tongues on a semi-regular basis, you put a four. Or the gift of interpretation, the same thing. And you will kind of get a feel for what those are. Next week I'm going to give the key to this. And it will tell you which column has which gift. And you can have a couple that are 16. Uh, you can. Most of them are going to be like 9 or 8, 11, something like that. But you're going to have a couple that are going to rise to the top. And they're going to be 16 and 15. Even you can get to the 14 area, and that will give you an idea what your gift is. And I'll explain more why this is important next week. You guys have any questions about the test or anything about today? And by the way, the test, you don't have to sweat it. There's not a wrong answer. I've got to study for the test. No, you just, you just fill out the answers. Okay? Questions? What? But never mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the chance to get together and discuss your word. We pray that you would make it alive for us. That although study is laborious, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to enjoy it, especially as we discover new truths that you have not revealed previously to us. And we know that your word is living and it is active and it is able to divide soul and spirit and determine the thoughts and intents of the heart. Father, we pray that as we're in it, you would do that. Reveal to us your will and continue to do so as we mature in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys.